Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to As a Woman, Fertility Hormones and Beyond. I'm your host, Dr. Natalie Crawford, and I am a board-certified OBGYN and fertility physician and also co-founder of Fora Fertility in Austin, Texas. With the goal of educating and empowering women, each week on this podcast, I discuss health and fertility and how they relate to your true self. Become a part of the community of collaboration that amplifies others as a woman. I hope you enjoy the episode. Hi, friends, and welcome back to the As a Woman podcast. I'm very excited to be talking today about the endometrium, which I just love. This is the inside or the tissue of the uterus that you bleed every month when you have your period. So we're going to be talking about what the endometrium is, what it is hormonally responsive to, things that change it that you may want to know, and then abnormalities like a thin lining, Asher-Menzer scar tissue, or endometrial polyps. So this is going to be highly informative on the inside of your uterus. I love it. So before we dive in, let's talk about this week's fertility in the news. All right. So this week's fertility in the news is an article published on NBCNews.com. It's a think opinion analysis essay. And it says, I want to expand my family, but Texas's abortion trigger ban stopped me in my tracks. As abortion bans go into effect, discarding an embryo during the IVF treatment process remains a murky area and puts many families with infertility issues in limbo. Now, Shannon Perry, who is an Austin-based writer, works on short stories and is just overall fantastic. I personally know her. So she is writing her story. She had secondary infertility where she had her first son without any issue and then needed to go to IVF to try to get pregnant, went through the process, had an embryo, did an embryo transfer, and had a loss. And as she and her husband were gearing up to try again, Suddenly, what happened is the Supreme Court took away reproductive rights. So after this entire roller coaster of giving herself shots, going through the egg retrieval, getting ready for the transfer, having the transfer ultimately be not successful, these are her words. For the first time, I doubt whether I'll try for another child. Unless the November midterm elections deliver a change in leadership, my husband and I will likely make the heartbreaking choice to forego fertility treatment to expand our family. Now, some anti-abortion advocates have called for embryos to have protection, and some have claimed that IVF is not a present target. Other people have stayed silent. So this really is a gray zone. And even attorney general also said they would defer to local prosecutors, essentially saying, what will they feel like doing? To put up the other aspect of this that this article brings up is it's not just about discarding your embryos or being permitted to do IVF in the safest, most effective way possible. It's also about what happens to you if you get pregnant and you have a pregnancy complication and you won't be able to potentially be properly managed. As we are seeing, uncertainty and doubt has caused issues in managing pregnancy complications like pre-viable loss, preterm rupture of membranes with 
the heartbeat of the baby, an ectopic pregnancy with a heartbeat, medications needed for incomplete miscarriage. And so if you already have a child and you are trying to get pregnant again or contemplating it, you might be placed in the position where you say, that's not a safe option. So now this law is actually so anti-life that we are going to have less children born because of the consequences. And that's what Shannon says here. How ironic that reversing Roe could lead to someone like me who wants more children to stick with one. While anti-abortion advocates claim their goal is to promote life, the new laws could do the opposite. Could not agree more. This is why, as some of you know, along with other fertility doctors, we've created Doctors for Fertility, which is a nonprofit and a PAC, which is going to be helping to influence the political sphere through the eyes of education and advocacy about fertility and reproductive rights. Our goal is for you to be able to have a pregnancy and a family safely. That is extremely important. We'd love it if you follow and support our mission, doctorsforfertility.org. All right, and back to the endometrium. So if we think about the endometrium, it is the lining of your uterus. It is dynamic, meaning that it changes throughout time, and it's highly hormonally sensitive. It's really fascinating that this is how our body prepares for our pregnancy. The uterus itself is just amazing. Let's just think about this organ that is hormonally responsive, able to vastly change, able to allow something to implant into it and grow and attach to its blood vessels and then detach and heal up and be all cool. The uterus is so freaking amazing. And I think sometimes it gets a bad reputation because period symptoms can be abnormal or it's something that is stigmatized and we don't always love to talk about. What's so fascinating is that the endometrium changes in response to our hormones throughout the cycle. But what I want you to understand is I want you to think about the endometrium, okay? This is the tissue that you bleed off. That's what we really think of. Really, the endometrium has an upper two-thirds and a lower one-third. The lower one-third is called the base salus. This is the layer that essentially regenerates the rest of the lining. It's regenerative endometrium. So after you have menstrual loss of the top layer, which is called the functionalis. So we call it all endometrium to be simple, but really it's a dynamic tissue where the top two-thirds bleeds off, the bottom one-third stays there, and that's what regenerates new endometrial cells. This is so important to understand because once you've had endometrial damage to that base salus later, it's very hard to regenerate new endometrium. And that is sometimes the difficulty we see when it comes to astromens or scar tissue of the uterus. So the endometrium that is really responsible to grow and regenerate is that functionalis. So the basalis allows it to do so, but the functionalis is what grows. So when you are growing a lining, that's the follicular phase. We always talk about the phases of the cycle. Those are really the ovarian phases. It is called at the uterine level, the proliferative phase. So remember, all of your eggs come out or a group of eggs comes out of the ovary from the group. One of these eggs growing inside a follicle gets selected to grow and ovulate. It grows under stimulation of FSH, follicle stimulating hormone. This is the first half of the cycle, the follicular phase. Now at the endometrial or the uterine level, what's happening to the endometrium, that estrogen that your growing follicle make first 
it heals up and gets you to stop bleeding. It says, hey, we're done. Functionalis is done shutting. Dear body, we're growing a new egg. Time to start getting things ready for the next opportunity to be pregnant. So that's the first thing that it does. Then as that egg starts becoming more mature and making more estrogen, we then see that this lining starts to proliferate. And that's why the uterine level is called the proliferative phase. This is from unopposed estrogen secretion. The glands are very organized. When you look under the ultrasound, your really crazy fertility doctors will say your lining is so pretty. It's beautiful. It's trilaminar. This means very, very organized. And it's very different under the microscope than other phases. So unopposed estrogen looks a very certain way, both microscopically and on ultrasound. After ovulation, your body starts making progesterone. And progesterone changes the endometrium. So the endometrial height or thickness is peak right about ovulation. After you start having progesterone made, so about three days after ovulation, that thickness actually stops growing and it can even compact. And this is because of what progesterone does to the lining itself. It actually starts to open and close the implantation window. And what that really means is it changes the vascularity and it's allowing that tissue to be implanted in case a pregnancy is coming along. Remember, that's its favorite thing to do is to allow a pregnancy to implant. So that's what progesterone is doing. Many of the time we call this stabilizing, compacting, allowing those blood vessels to be happily implanted if a pregnancy comes along. Now, remember in the luteal phase, the second half of the cycle, the corpus luteum, which is what was the follicle. So the follicle that grew, that released the egg, healed back and formed a corpus luteum and is stimulated from the brain to make progesterone. So the brain sends out LH or luteinizing hormones and that LH stimulates that corpus luteum to make progesterone. This is the luteal phase or the second half of the cycle. And at the uterine lining level, this is called the secretory phase because it's all these good glands and it's really ready for implantation. So these are the normal phases, but that corpus luteum only lasts about 12 to 14 days. And if there's no pregnancy to save it or start making the HCG, that pregnancy hormone, that progesterone level drops and that's a signal for endometrial breakdown. So then you start to see high levels of inflammation and breakdown of that endometrial tissue. And that is what you bleed off. Now, what is normal? The first day of heavy bleeding is considered the first day of your period and about half of your menstrual tissue is expelled in those first 24 hours. So it's very normal that you say, hey, I had really heavy bleeding for a day or two. That's super common. You have on general about five days or so of bleeding that should occur at a regular cyclic interval. Most flow is between four to six days, but as little of two or as high as eight can all be normal. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Ritual. Did you know that women were excluded from clinical research policy by federal law until 1993? But women belong in scientific research. They're essential and Ritual knows this. I choose Ritual Multivitamin every day because it is easy to take and I know that I am getting high quality and traceable ingredients in a clean and bioavailable forms. In fact, Ritual conducted a university-led human clinical trial for their Essential for Women 18 Plus Multivitamin 
to assess its efficacy, and the results showed increase in vitamin D levels by 43% and omega-3 DHA levels by 41% in just 12 weeks. No Lime Shady Business, Rituals Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin that you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month at ritual.com slash A-A-W. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash A-A-W for 25% off. Thank you, Ritual. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Apostrophe. With the temperature starting to warm up, I'm so excited the summer is around the corner and getting ready and looking forward to the summer months. But I know that when I'm outside enjoying nature, I need to pick up supplies to prepare myself for summer adventures. And if you want to get your skin glowing in time for summer, it's time for you to get started with Apostrophe, who is sponsoring this episode. Apostrophe's goal is to help you feel confident in your own skin. So whether you're dealing with breakouts, signs of aging, or acne scarring, Apostrophe will help you love the skin you're in. I personally love that you get access to an expert dermatology team, a tailored treatment plan. It's simple to sign up for your first visit, and there is no in-person appointment or trip to the pharmacy needed. We have a special deal for our audience. Get your first visit for only $5 at apostrophe.com slash A-A-W when you use our code A-A-W. That's a savings of $15. This code is only available to our listeners. To get started, just go to apostrophe.com slash A-A-W and click get started. Then use the code A-A-W at sign up and you'll get your first visit for only $5. Thank you, Apostrophe, for sponsoring this episode. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Quince. The weather's getting warmer, so it's time to say goodbye to jackets and sweaters and hello to shorts and tees. I wanted to update my wardrobe for the long haul without spending a fortune. And luckily, I found Quince. Now I've got a lineup of timeless pieces that keep me looking effortlessly chic year after year. The best part is that Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands, but Quince partners directly with top factories, cutting out the cost of the middleman, passing the saving to us, and only working with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices. I personally cannot wait to wear my cute tan linen set this summer. So it's your turn to get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash A-A-W for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash A-A-W to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash A-A-W. Thank you, Quince. Okay, so what all can cause a thin endometrial lining? This is something that may clinically show up by having very light periods, especially if you used to have regular periods. One is having a low estrogen level, so your body's not making enough estrogen. That makes sense because if you make estrogen, estrogen's what grows the lining. But the real question here is, why would you not have enough estrogen, right? Our bodies don't just have low estrogen. Top cause is going to be starting to run out of eggs. Because even though you're still ovulating or growing an egg when you have less of them, you actually grow it a lot faster. That signal from the brain works a lot quicker and you tend to get to maturity much faster. This is why a lot of people will report, hey, my cycles are now closer together than they used to be. It's that follicular phase that's shortening and you're ovulating sooner. 
that's bad because you don't have then enough time or estrogen exposure to get to that peak lining thickness. So having a low ovarian reserve can be one reason why you have a low estrogen level. Another can be another endocrine disease like thyroid disease or abnormal prolactin secretion from the pituitary gland. So something that's going on in your pituitary that's not allowing your brain to send out enough FSH to grow a follicle. We also think things that impact the hypothalamus, the part of the brain that controls the pituitary gland, can also impact the strength of the FSH signal or how it controls an egg growing. So these things very well could be not getting enough sleep, being stressed, being in a calorie deficiency, over-exercising, having a prior eating disorder, having a chronic illness, having an autoimmune disease. There's a variety of things that may impact the normal signals that come from the brain that then work at the ovarian level to make an egg or to make estrogen. All right, you also might have damage to the endometrial lining. As we were talking about, if you have damage to that bottom one-third later, the basalis is going to be hard to regenerate that normal functionalis layer that grows on top of it. So classically, when you have a lot of damage to the uterus, this is called Asherman syndrome. Asherman syndrome is when the uterus has been replaced by scar tissue. So that basalis no longer functions and you can't regenerate the top level. This happens, people clinically present with, I have no period, and yet we text our hormones and everything's normal. And we go and we do imaging inside the uterus and we see that it's full of scar tissue instead of normal endometrium. This can be attempted to be fixed with surgery, depending on the severity, it's not always fixed. Asherman's is almost always caused by some type of damage to the endometrium by instrumentation, meaning putting things in the uterus. So DNCs, which is a dilation and cortage, that can happen, that can cause this. A DNC procedure is really now a suction curatage, so we don't really use these sharp instruments like we used to when the procedure first came around. Typically, it's done with just a suction, which has a low risk of causing scar tissue afterward, although low is not no. So routine suction DNCs for an incomplete miscarriage or a missed miscarriage or for an early pregnancy termination are not likely to result in uterine scarring. Now, DNC procedures that are done for a medical indication, especially in an urgent scenario, incomplete miscarriage with heavy bleeding, hemorrhage from the uterus, uncontrolled uterine bleeding for unknown reason, retained placenta, septic abortion, where the placental tissue has become septic. In these circumstances where you go in and do a DNC that are medically indicated to try to save somebody's life, you sometimes do damage the basalis layer. And sometimes there's no way to get around this. You have to save their life. And if their uterus is damaged as the aftermath, sometimes that does happen. It is a terrible place to be in. But the classic story is I had a retained placenta and then they went in and got it out, and now I don't have periods. We go and we find out somebody has Asherman syndrome. So those are some of the classic findings. Other things can be more subtle and may just present with light periods or irregular periods. And I've seen damage to the endometrial layer from prior uterine surgery, like myomectomies, cutting out fibroids, or from prior improper IUD placements. So even though those things are not common, we are putting things into the uterus, we are predisposing risk. If you are found to have damaged uterine tissues, so there's scar inside the uterus, you're going to have a hysteroscopy or surgery where you put a camera through the cervix into the uterus to try to take care of that scar tissue 
Subsequently, you usually have to go on a pretty strict protocol to try to get that tissue to regenerate, potentially get that base salis to spread to get some of those good cells. This can usually be antibiotics, steroid hormones like estrogen, sometimes having a little balloon placed in the uterus. Everybody does it a little bit differently. Now, sometimes we just see thin lining, and that could be from prior hormonal treatment. So previous suppression of the endometrium from growing over a prolonged period of time. So examples of this could be continuous birth control pills. So if you take your pills and you never have that period week, that's fine. But if you do that for a long time, that tissue may get thinner and thinner because your body is seeing progesterone every single day. And in nature, you don't see progesterone every single day. Same thing with a progesterone-based IUD, like a Mirena. That's one of the benefits of these IUDs is that your period gets lighter slash absent. However, after prolonged suppression, may take a while for your lining to grow back thick enough to actually bleed or to bleed at a normal level. And other progesterone forms like Depo-Provera, which is the shot, or the Nexplanon or Implanon, which is what goes in your arm, the implant. So these may thin out the endometrium, and it may just take a while to recover from this. This is why I always recommend stopping that hormonal contraception about three months before you want to start trying to get pregnant to give your uterus a time to respond to your body's normal hormones. You also have to see if your body can make your normal hormones. So I usually say get your IUD out or stop birth control pills about three months before you want to be pregnant. Allow your brain to turn back on. Therefore, you can get some of that nice unopposed estrogen to try to stimulate growth of the lining. And in some patients, I've actually had to give them some oral estrogen for a little bit of time to really saturate that uterus with estrogen and allow that lining to remember how to grow and to thicken up over time. Another cause of abnormal growth of the endometrium can be a decrease in blood flow. Now, this might be due to other acute or chronic conditions, such as having high blood pressure or having diabetes, could be from autoimmune disease or chronic inflammation. It might be from prior uterine surgery. So maybe you've had a C-section in the past, or you've had fibroids taken out, and now the blood supply is rerouted differently, or potentially even just healing after prior childbirth. So we don't always know the reason why there is decreased blood flow, but having low blood flow to the uterus has also been associated with miscarriage in a very small limited study. So this leads us to, well, what can we do to try to increase blood flow to the uterus by far and away being healthy? Getting your blood pumping overall is going to help. So walking, yoga, this is the mechanism behind some of the thought of how acupuncture or even, you know, uterus pelvic massage could be helpful because you're improving the blood supply and the circulation. This is also why certain medications can be helpful, typically thought to decrease inflammation. So things like vitamin E or N-acetylcysteine or L-arginine. Also melatonin at night potentially could be helpful. We're not sure if it's more helpful because you're ovulating a little bit better because of its impact on the brain, or is it due to an improvement in sleep and a reduction in stress, and therefore there's decreased inflammation or improved uterine blood flow, but that could be something that could be helpful for a thin lining as well. The next thing that can impact your endometrial lining can be structurally having something inside your lining. So this could be a uterine septum, uterine fibroids, or endometrial polyps. So when we think of these things and how they impact the endometrium, a uterine septum is a birth defect. It's the most common birth defect of the uterus. So did you know the uterus actually forms in two little buds? They grow and elongate, fuse together, and this midline portion reabsorbs. 
These little buds include the top third of the vagina, the cervix, the uterus itself, and each fallopian tube. And the last step of this process or reabsorption of that midline avascular connective tissue, failure of that is called a uterine septum, meaning there's this residual piece of tissue dangling into the uterus. So if that is happening, you can actually have an increased chance of having a miscarriage because the pregnancy may come and try to attach to that piece. But also you might see an abnormal appearing uterine lining or a thinner lining on ultrasound because that septum's kind of standing in the way. So that is one that's a surgical correction. So if you find that it's a surgical diagnosis and then your chance of miscarriage goes back to baseline, the next thing could be a uterine fibroid. So a uterine fibroid is a benign tumor that is found inside the uterus. A fibroid is the same tissue type that is the myometrium or the muscle component of the uterus, which is the bulk of the uterine tissue, what causes cramps and allows the uterus to grow and expand and then also contract when you have contractions. Fibroids sometimes can impact fertility based on where they are. So you can have subserosal fibroids or fibroids on the outside of the uterus. Those usually do not impact fertility. You can have fibroids in the myometrium or in that muscular layer itself. Those are called intramural, and those are the most common type. Those can sometimes impact infertility if they're pushing into that endometrial layer or they're disrupting blood supply because they're very big or they obstruct the fallopian tubes. Or you can have fibroids on the inside of the uterus, and this is considered submucosal, and these fibroids definitely can be a problem. These fibroids that are on the very inside of the uterus actually disrupt the endometrium. They can cause abnormal bleeding patterns, and they also can prevent normal growth and cause inflammation inside the uterus. So these do need to be removed if they are inside the uterus. So fibroids are really common, may or may not impact fertility. Another thing is an endometrial polyp. Endometrial polyps are actually very common and almost always benign. They are projections of growth of the endometrial tissue itself. They tend to develop just in some people more than others, but generally under the stimulation of estrogen. We do know you are at more risk of them if you have more prolonged unopposed estrogen. So for example, a patient with PCOS who potentially does not ovulate every month has a lot of unexposed estrogen because all those small follicles that are not responding are making low levels of estrogen. And it's not until you take progesterone or you get a random ovulation that you actually see that progesterone, stabilize the lining, and get it to bleed off. So all that time that you're not having periods is not normal, and that can encourage the growth of these endometrial polyps. And they can turn into cancer in those circumstances. So when somebody has a regular period and is found to have an endometrial polyp, I almost never worry. One time in my career, has an endometrial polyp in a regularly cycling person been found to be cancerous? However, if I find an endometrial polyp and you have months and months that you haven't had a period, oh my gosh, if it's been a year, I'm highly concerned that that could actually be a cancerous growth. So if we find polyps, they do need to come out, but they are inflammatory also, and they can prevent normal growth of the lining. Their lining may look not organized, and it could potentially be abnormal and thin, and it definitely can impact inflammation. One of the last things that can kind of impact the uterine lining could be an inflammation directly of the endometrial tissue. This is called endometritis, not to be confused with endometriosis. Endometritis is an inflammation of the uterine lining 
This can be found by looking at endometrial tissue under the microscope and identifying plasma cells. It's not truly an infection. It's more of an inflammation, but we do treat it with antibiotics, usually doxycycline, but sometimes azithromycin or other antibiotics. And that's usually a kind of a long course, like take them for a couple weeks. If you're going forward with IVF, sometimes we'll check for this. Sometimes we'll empirically treat you with a course of antibiotics. So you may be given an antibiotic prescription before your embryo transfer and have no idea why. And it's often that just treating you with a low-risk antibiotic in case you potentially had plasma cells or an inflammation of the endometrium is a lot easier and faster than putting you through an endometrial biopsy to see if you have plasma cells. Some doctors will do the biopsy. It's not wrong. There's some fancy uterine testing companies now that are doing this and charging you a lot of money for it. But a lot of us incorporate this testing or this treatment without the testing because it's faster and simpler. But just another thing that can impact the normal growth of that endometrium or impact the ability to get pregnant. So everybody has their own set thickness they can achieve with an endometrium. Warning signs is that if your periods are now very, very light or they're absent, you definitely want to get that investigated, especially if you have a risk factor. You've been on hormonal contraception for suppression for a long time. You've had a DNC. You had a retained placenta. You had a uterine surgery. You had an IUD. Talk to your doctor and get that evaluated. Now, if you're undergoing IVF and you had no idea you had period issues or lining issues, and suddenly you have found yourself in this new world of a thin lining club, meaning the doctors have told you they don't like how your lining is growing, and now you're all worked up over having a thin lining. First of all, so many babies implant in people's linings that we have no idea what they are, and they probably implant in thin linings in nature all the time. We just don't have that data. We only have it in these infertility patients or these IVF cycles. So we might be making a bigger deal than what's actually there. Almost every fertility doctor I know, myself included, would take an organized lining, even if it's thin, over a thick one that is disorganized every day. And if we see a very irregular lining, it's almost a quick step into surgical evaluation or saline sonogram to check the inside of the uterus because that's not a normal finding. Now, if your lining's thin, it might be because of the protocol you're using for the frozen embryo transfer. In a frozen embryo transfer, there's different types of protocols. The traditional protocol is considered a controlled or a medicated. I give you estrogen to grow your lining. This may be pills, patches, vaginal, injectable, variety of ways. And that synthetic estrogen is working to grow the lining. And then I'm checking with ultrasound to make sure I like how it looks. If I don't like how it looks and it's thin, you might fall into this thin club. One option is to try to change the route of administration. So something I find is that very often I'll find patients are fast metabolizers of oral estrogen. And if I give them the same pill, but vaginally, suddenly their endometrium looks totally different. It's closer to the source and it's just metabolized by your body differently. So that is one trick I will do is change the route, how it is delivered. So that is one option. Another option is to change the cycle type altogether. Of course, this does take time and money. But it's the whole premise that in certain people, their lining will never look the same when you give them artificial estrogen as it will when they make their own endogenous estrogen. And this is the idea for a modified natural cycle or a natural cycle. Essentially, in that type of protocol, your body's growing an egg, whether it's naturally 
or you induce ovulation with a medication called Femara or Letrozole, or you give FSH injections like you do in the IVF process. Whichever way you choose, what you're doing is growing an egg. That egg makes estrogen. That estrogen grows the lining just like it does in nature. That cycle is a little bit trickier with the timing based on the progesterone and the length of progesterone exposure. But for some people, it is night and day difference. So if you're either not having success and your lining looks great or your lining doesn't look great, very often we recommend this as a different treatment approach or at least changing the way you're administering estrogen. All right. And then there's one last thing to think about, and that is the ERA or the endometrial receptivity analysis test. The ERA is a test that was created to evaluate after you've had recurrent miscarriage or recurrent implantation failure. And the premise here is that implantation typically occurs between days five to seven of progesterone exposure. As we've done IVF and we are choosing when to put an embryo back into the body, we have been doing it on day six of progesterone since IVF began. But the question here is that, well, are some people receptive at different timeframes? And so if you've had losses or you've had embryo transfers not be successful, your doctor may talk about an ERA. You go through an entire embryo transfer protocol, you grow a lining, you check with ultrasound, you start progesterone. But then instead of putting an embryo in your body, if you're doing a biopsy of the uterine lining, it's then being looked at under the microscope to look at its genetic profile of estrogen and progesterone receptors and saying, hey, it's receptive, it's not receptive, it needs more or less time. The ERA in most people, even if they qualify in the study, is going to be receptive, meaning even if you've had recurrent pregnancy loss, the number one most common outcome is receptive. However, it does look like in people who are not receptive, if you change the amount of progesterone exposure, they do have improved pregnancy rates. Now, we're not really sure if this test should be applied for everybody, and in fact, studies have shown that it should not, meaning should everybody do this test before their first transfer? No data supports that right now. However, it might help decrease your time to live birth. We don't know if you're going to have a problem or not. And there's probably a great use when it comes to family planning or not having very many embryos. So somebody who has a hard time getting embryos may consider the test very differently than somebody who has no problem getting them. And the duration of your infertility and your cause. If you've gotten pregnant, you've carried a baby in the past, that's a lot different because your uterus was previously receptive. Why do we think it has a problem now versus if you've never been able to carry or you've had lots of losses? So I just think that's a real big clinical discussion with your doctor. But the take home message is that the ERA is really not conclusive. It hasn't been around very long. There's limited research, pros and cons. I do the test, but it's something that I don't do in everybody. We talk about it but it is a test to see if you need a different amount of progesterone. All right, well, that was the endometrium in a huge nutshell. I hope you liked hearing some of that and I hope it was helpful. We are now going to go into FFS for fertility sake. This is our weekly Q&A where I answer your top fertility questions. You can ask these questions every week on Instagram at Natalie Crawford, MD. You can ask your questions on Monday. Every Monday, there's a question box. Some questions will be answered there. And you can also call in to our new voicemail. I'm going to tell you, we really want the voicemail to be successful. So if you really want your question answered, I get thousands on Instagram. Come on to the voicemail, 657-229-3672. Again, 657-229-3672. Leave a voicemail and we would love to answer your question. All right, let's dive into some of your questions. 
how far in advance to start a prenatal when planning to conceive. We want you to start at least three months before you want to get pregnant. That's about the length of time it takes for eggs to start being selected, but also to build up proper stores of folic acid. Folic acid is in every prenatal vitamin. You need at least 400 micrograms a day, and it is very important in preventing birth defects, specifically neural tube defects. So I want you to be taking that prenatal at least three months before you start trying to get pregnant. My doctor recommends IUI, but I'm worried about multiples. What is the percent risk? This is a good question. It depends on what you're doing with the IUI. So if you're just doing an IUI because you need donor sperm and you're going on your natural cycle, you have a very low chance of twins. However, most people who are doing IUI are doing it for unexplained infertility. And in that circumstance, we are usually stimulating the ovaries to grow as well. When we're stimulating those ovaries, you're typically using medication like Clomid or Femara, which are oral pills or injectable hormones like FSH and LH. When you do that, that has a much different risk of multiples. So we typically say it's up to 10% when you use oral medications and up to 30% when you're using injectables. So that's a significant risk. If you're worried, talk to your doctor about, well, what are we using for ovulation induction? And can we set a goal number of follicles on monitoring that we feel comfortable with this risk? And I do this for every patient. Our goal is this. If you have this number or more, we're going to cancel the cycle and try again at a lower dose. Do you always have to use PIO or are PROG suppositories just as good? So PIO is progesterone and oil, and I'm presuming this question is about a frozen embryo transfer. So those transfer protocols I was talking to you about are after IVF are for frozen transfers. The best progesterone replacement is going to depend on what your protocol is. So if your protocol is one of those cycles where you're making estrogen because you're growing an egg, then you're also going to be making some progesterone because of that corpus luteum. And then you can use vaginal progesterone. So a natural cycle, a modified natural, or a fresh transfer. If, however, you're doing a controlled or medicated cycle, studies have conclusively shown that at least some progesterone needs to be administered PIO, whether it's every single day or a combination of injectable progesterone, that's an intramuscular injection, plus vaginal, you need a combination of both at a very minimum, must have some injectable in controlled or medicated cycles. Does a short follicular phase always equal worse egg quality? Not necessarily, but it does typically equal less eggs. So if we differentiate the two topics in our brain, we can have fewer eggs and we can have poor egg quality. And sometimes they go together. They go together in almost everybody at some point because as you get older, your egg quality worsens. And as you get older, you have less eggs. However, you can have a young person with low egg count. They are running out of eggs faster. They then are going to have fewer eggs available every month. An egg is going to grow in response to FSH sooner, shortening that follicular phase, allowing less estrogen to grow and have a thinner lining. But their egg quality is very good because they're young. Same thing can go the other way. Your egg quality could be poor and you could have a lot of eggs and have normal phases. But to answer the question, no, a short follicular phase does not always equal worse egg quality. Next is my REI is recommending a fresh transfer with PCOS. What are your thoughts? I am going to say I have a podcast episode and a YouTube video on the embryo transfer, which you should go check out. However, in general, I like fresh transfers for patients who are young. So I'm not worried about genetic abnormalities who do not have many eggs. 
When you have mini eggs like you tend to with PCOS, you run the risk of ovarian hyperstimulation and having early elevated progesterone and a high estrogen, which might decrease the success of the transfer. So in my brain, if you're really classically a PCOS patient, I would never do a fresh transfer in those patients anymore because we have better options, less risky options, and better successful. How can I improve my uterine lining on Clomid? This is a great question to end on. Clomid is a medication used for ovulation injection. It's what's called a selective estrogen receptor modulator or a SERM, S-E-R-M. Clomid works by binding to estrogen receptors. So at the brain level, your brain says, oh no, we don't have any estrogen. And then it sends out a stronger signal of FSH. That FSH grows an egg. Fantastic. Then you ovulate. However, there's also estrogen receptors in the endometrium, as we talked about. That's how the endometrium grows. And so in some people, Clomid antagonizes at the level of the endometrium and causes a thinning of your endometrial lining. The easiest choice is in a subsequent cycle. Your doctor should say, oh, look, your lining is thin on Clomid on this ultrasound. I'm going to give you letrozole or Femara, which is like a cousin of Clomid's. It works differently. It degrades estrogen in the periphery, so your brain sends out a stronger signal of FSH but it's not impacting the lining in any way. So that's the number one. Typically, we just switch medication. Number two, could switch to also FSH, follicle-stimulating hormone. But if for some reason we're not switching medication, next best options would be to add on a vaginal estrogen pill. And I've done this for some patients in the past. Hey, the lining's a little thin. Let's perk it up right before implantation day. Or to try to do what you can to improve circulation to the uterine lining to see if that can improve things. So all those things we said before, Walking, yoga, consider acupuncture or massage, take supplements like vitamin E, L-arginine, NAC, melatonin, potentially those type of things can help and see if that benefits. But it's really quite easier to usually just switch to a different medication the next time. All right. These were fantastic questions and I hope you liked them. Hope you liked learning a little bit about the endometrium or the lining of the uterus inside your body. I think it's so fascinating. I would love it if you guys want to ask questions. So again, for fertility's sake, our weekly Q&A, you can ask on Instagram on Monday at Natalie Crawford MD, or you can call our voicemail 657-229-3672. Thanks, friends. Thank you all for listening to As a Woman. It would mean so much if you could rate, review, and follow the podcast to be notified of new episodes every Sunday. I hope you learned something new and I hope you share it with someone in your life. Be sure to follow along on Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD and check out the YouTube channel, Natalie Crawford MD. If you're interested in becoming a patient, you can also follow Fora Fertility. I'm so thrilled to have you here, part of the community that amplifies others as a woman.